We are back in the Gospel of Luke, and we'll be in Luke until the Lord directs us otherwise. So let us ask the Lord for help. Father, we are grateful for this time that you have given us. Lord, your people need you. Father, we don't need a message that comes from man. We need a message that comes from the Almighty. So Lord, feed us your word, help your servant, and help us to glorify your great name. In Christ we pray, amen. In 2004, I was married in this church to my beloved wife, Kara, and in the first year or two of our marriage, I can't remember the exact year, uh, I made a recommendation to my wife. I said, let's go on our first fishing trip together. And so we ended up going to Panguitch Lake up in Utah, which is about three hours north of here. And I invited my military buddy and his four teenage sons to join us on this fishing trip. And so they joined us there, and we did our research upon our uh, arrival. And if you know anything about me, I love to research how to make things easier. So when it comes to fishing, I watched where all the fishermen were at, I looked at different parts of the lakes, and I pinpointed locations or fishing holes that we need to get to at 6 a.m. tomorrow morning or the next day. And so we were excited about our plan. We were going to execute our plan. And so the very next day, we rented a boat. We brought our equipment, the fishing line, the reels, the rods, the bait, everything we needed. And we ended up at the fishing hole right on time. Kara said, by the way, I don't wake up at 05.30 in the morning. I don't wake up early in the morning. So pick me up at 9 o'clock. So me and the four other men ended up getting to the lake. And we were right at the exact hole that I thought where all the fish was at. Three hours had passed. It's now 9 in the morning. And we had caught exactly zero fish at that time. And so I went to go pick up Kara. We got back to the fishing hole at 10 o'clock in the morning, an hour later. And I asked the boys, I said, boys, how many fish did you catch? And they said, exactly none. And I said, oh, this is a brutal day of fishing. <laughs> and so let me just say this right off the bat. Kara has zero fishing experience. I don't say that to be mean, but she doesn't have any fishing experience. And so she cast out her, her, her hook, and after 30 minutes, she decided to call it quits because it's boring. She didn't catch any fish. And as she was reeling up her line to call it quits, her fishing rod popped. And she said, oh, I, thought I, I think I caught a fish. And I looked at the four other men on the boat, and we said, if... She caught a fish. We are going to stay here all day <laughs> until we catch a fish. And so, sure enough, she pulls up a fish, and we looked at the men, and we didn't care that a storm was coming in and the sky, sky was turning black. We were going to stay there all day until we caught a fish. And so the thing about fishing is it's very discouraging and depressing if you don't catch any fish. Fishing is fun when you actually catch fish and people instruct you and show you how to catch 
fish. Well, today's story or sermon is that our Savior likewise instructs Simon Peter where to catch fish and how to catch fish. But it's not the type of fish that Simon expects. So we're in Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. It's entitled, Catching Live People. And the main point that I want to get across is this. Jesus is establishing a new humanity. A new humanity through the gospel. And we need to keep this in mind as we go through today's text. The background is really the first couple of verses and the end of chapter 4. But at the end of chapter 4, Jesus preaches the gospel, the good news of the kingdom. And in, now in chapter 5, we see a different part of Jesus' ministry. In these verses, there is Jesus, there is Simon, who's later identified as Simon Peter. There's James and John, those are brothers. They're sons of Zebedee, they're actually part of the original 12 apostles that Jesus had called. And there's also a large crowd, so here are all the characters within our text today. And in verse 1, we see that the setting is at a very real place, a historical body of water, the Lake of Gennesaret. It's also known as the Sea of Galilee. If you look at your maps at the end of your Bible, you will see the Sea of Galilee is the same as the Sea of Gennesaret or the Sea of Tiberias. There's a massive crowd wherever Jesus goes by this time, there are crowds of people. There are a multitude of people. And these people are leaning on and moving forward and pressing upon Jesus. They want to hear what this man has to say. They want to hear his teaching and his doctrine. They wanted to hear the word of God. And in verse 2, Jesus sees two boats. These two boats are unmanned. Why? Because the fishermen are washing their nets. It seems that during biblical times, it was preferred, and some of this applies in today's context, but it's preferred to fish not during the day, but fish during at night. And then when it comes to daytime, you wash your nets, and then you lay the nets out on the beach so that the sun would dry them out. And when the nets are dry, they become lighter and they're easier to fold. Then in verse 3, Jesus gets into one of the boats and he says to Simon, Simon Peter, Simon, push the boat out into deeper water. And Simon Peter does so. And Jesus is in his normal posture of teaching, which is sitting down. That is normal in the custom of that time. And Jesus starts to teach the people the word of God. And then by the time he finishes teaching, he gives a command to Simon and those who are in his fishing party. So that's the background. And now we'll see that there are three important items that connect to our main point of Jesus establishing a new humanity through the gospel. And the three important points are these. Number one, divine imperative. That's verse four. Number two, divine authority, verse eight. And number three, divine mission in verse 10. Read with me. In Luke chapter 5, verse 4, this is point number one, the divine imperative. He, referring to Jesus, said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. In this one verse, there are two commands. 
put out into the deep. He's, that command is specifically for Simon, to push the boat or relocate the boat into deeper water. But the second part of that verse is another command. But that command is given to Simon and all those who are with Simon. To let down your nets for a catch. Who's in this party, this fishing party? You have Simon Peter, you have James, you have John. But listen to Simon's response to Jesus' command, the second half. He doesn't have a problem pushing the boat into deeper water. Simon Peter has a problem with the second part of the verse about letting the nets out again. In verse 5, Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word I will let down the nets. Simon Peter acknowledges Jesus as master. That word master is leader. He's in the role of a leader. That's Simon's position. And so he understands that Jesus has a high status. But Simon Peter also confesses to something. He says, we, Simon, James, and John, we have worked hard all night long to catch fish. Back in those days, they would start roughly at 6 o'clock at night when the sun would set and it's dark. And they would fish all night until the sun would rise in the morning. We're talking about 5 in the morning. So that's approximately 12 hours of fishing, 11 to 12 hours of fishing. And these men worked all night and they caught no fish. Being a fisherman during biblical times was laborious work, hard work. Those nets, when they get heavy because of water, you have to be strong to pull them in. And if you catch any fish, that's even heavier. And you have to be stronger to pull the net in with the fish. We, they don't have the modern technology of machinery that we have today. One must be strong in order to do the job of a fisherman properly. So what is Simon actually saying when he says, Lord, you really want, to, want us to put out the nets again? What is Simon actually saying? Simon is saying this, Lord, Master, you are a carpenter by trade. You know woodworking skills. You know how to build things. I am Simon. I'm a fisherman. As a matter of fact, I'm a professional fisherman. This is what I've done all my life. I know where the fish are at. I know how to catch fish. I'm a professional, professional fisherman. That's what, that's what Peter is actually saying to Jesus. He's saying in a very nice way, I really don't agree with what you're commanding me to do for you. Now, imagine this. Imagine me, Pastor Rolo, Brother Rolo, coming up to you, dear brother, dear sister in Christ, and I say, dear brother, dear sister in Christ, for your hair, you need to use this specific shampoo product. And this is the technique, how you rub it in. And once you wash out the shampoo, this is how you use conditioner. And then once you wash out the conditioner, you let your hair dry and you comb it, and then you use gel or mousse to style your hair. Now, you would say, Pastor Rolo, you have no business 
you have no business telling me how to take care of my hair. Why? Because you have none. <laughs> What's the point? Pastor Rolo does not have any personal experience on how to take care of hair. So that's the idea. Lord, I'm a fisherman. You're a carpenter. This doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Yet Simon obeys. He says, at your word, at your command, at your bidding, Lord, I will do this. I will let down the nets. As a matter of fact, those who are in his fishing party, the two boats and those who are there, they're going to let down all the nets at the word of Jesus, at the command of Jesus. You know, if you and I were to go fishing right now, let's say Penguin Lake, we would use a rod, a reel, line, a hook, and bait. Those are the things you need. But in biblical times, they didn't have that at all. That's a, that's a uh, Western style of fishing. But fishing during that time requires a net that's in circular shape with heavy weights around the sides. And so the nets can get very, very heavy. But look at the result in verse 6. When they obeyed the Lord, this is what happened. They enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking and tearing. There was so much fish that the nets started to tear. And so they signaled over to their partners, their fishing partners, their business associates in the fishing industry to come over and help us with this massive catch of fish. And when the second boat approached, even the second boat had problems because there was so much fish that both boats were starting to sink. The net was so heavy. And so this is a problem if you're a fisherman of this time, that you can't pull in the fish. You don't have the right equipment. You don't have enough help. You don't have the right net, so to speak. And so during that time, that would be a catastrophe in the fishing industry. So we're talking about several tons of fish. That's how heavy it was for those boats to nearly sink. And so the result of this catch that I want us to pay attention to is this. They didn't catch the fish because they had good technique. They didn't catch the fish because they had good methods. They didn't catch the fish because they were good orators and they talked to the fish. They did not do any of that. They caught the fish because Jesus commanded it. Jesus said so. In other words, it's obedience to the Lord that counts. That's why they caught this massive amount of fish, is because of obedience. So that's point number one, the divine imperative. And now point number two, divine authority, which is in verse number eight. And it says this, when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. So we see now that Simon goes from calling Jesus master to now Lord. Simon recognizes divine authority. And when he saw this fish, 
all these fish, heavy fish, and the boats were starting to sink. He fell down to his knees, to the knees of Jesus, which is the posture of humility. It's the posture of reverence. It's the posture of awe. Simon Peter confesses before the Lord that he is a sinful man. He's in the presence of someone greater. And so one of the implications of this is when you're fearful is that there's a fear of being judged. When a person realizes, when a sinner realizes they're in the presence of God, and God is great, and God is powerful, and God is holy, there's this sense of fear in the person. So Simon Peter identifies Jesus as now the Lord. The word Lord is a title of respect. But it's more than a title of respect in this case. Because a title of respect means nothing if you don't see the actual miracle. And the miracle is the Lord caused all of these fish to go into the net. So Simon acknowledges God's greatness, God's power in the person of Jesus Christ. In other words, he correctly identifies who Jesus is. Jesus is not just a carpenter. Jesus is not just a moral person. Jesus is not simply a teacher. Jesus is the one whom the angel Gabriel says will be great and be, will be called the Son of the Most High. That's what the angel Gabriel said about Jesus. Jesus is the one who is called holy, the Son of God. That's Luke 1, 35. Jesus is the one whom the angel said to the shepherds by night, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Jesus is the one who is called salvation and a light for revelation to the Gentiles. That's Luke 2.30. Jesus is the one who defeated the devil in the wilderness. We see that in Luke chapter 4. Jesus is the one who defeated the devil at the cross and his resurrection. Jesus is the one who's the Lord over demons. Jesus is the one who's Lord over sicknesses and diseases. He heals. Jesus is the one who's the Lord over mankind, over nature. He's the one who calmed the storm when him and his disciples were on the sea. And he's also the one who's the Lord over every animal in the universe, including fish. Think about this for a second. If you've ever gone fishing and you stick your head in the water, you'll see fish, hopefully, scattered everywhere. Fish go wherever they want to go. But in this scenario, all these fish congregated in one location at one time, not randomly, but intentionally by the power of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the miracle. That the Lord Jesus is the Lord over fish, and the Lord Jesus is the Lord over all. He's the Lord of the universe. He's not simply a carpenter. He is Jesus, the Son of God. Jesus is the one who directed these fish. Again, let me reiterate, these fish didn't come by man's technique or method. 
but by Jesus, who is Lord over all. So, Simon correctly identifies who Jesus is. But Simon also correctly identifies himself as a sinner. See, when a sinner sees Jesus clearly, clearly, they automatically see themselves clearly. When we think that we are fine, that sin is no big deal, and that I'm basically a good person, a righteous person, a moral person, then what's happening is they don't see Jesus clearly at that point. They esteem themselves highly, and they lower Jesus. But the reality is this. Simon identifies himself correctly as a sinner. That's what happens when you're in the presence of God. That's what happens when you're in the presence of the power of God. Simon Peter identifies himself as an unrighteous man before the Lord. This should remind us of Isaiah chapter 6, which we just read. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And listen to this. Isaiah says this, Woe is me. Woe is me. For I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen what? My eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. When we see the King clearly and identify him as King, we automatically see ourselves clearly that we are woeful, that we are unrighteous, that we are sinful. That's what happens when a sinner comes into the presence of God. God is great. God is holy. God is powerful. In Isaiah the prophet says, I'm undone. I'm undone. Woe is me. In other words, I'm in trouble to the highest degree. Unless God has mercy upon me, a sinner. And if you read the rest of those verses, a coal from the altar came over to Isaiah by an angel, touched the mouth, the sinful mouth, and his sin was atoned for. That's the grace of God providing that. That's the kindness of God providing that. Look at verse number 9. When the people saw this supernatural Miracle. This is not a natural miracle, but a supernatural miracle. They were astonished. They were amazed. Only Jesus can do that. Only Jesus, the Son of God, can do that. So we've seen so far in this text Jesus' divine imperative, Jesus' divine authority recognized by Simon, and now point number three, and I want to spend some time here. The divine mission, verse number 10. 
And so also were James and John and sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you'll be catching men. Jesus commands Simon to not be afraid. It's clear that Simon is fearful. That's what happens when you come into the presence of one who is great and holy and mighty. But Jesus calms him, so to speak, commands him. He says, do not fear, Simon. From now on, you, Simon, will be catching men. The word for men is the word anthropoi. That refers to men and women. Men and women. That can apply to boys and girls as well. And the word catching is the word zogron, and that word means to control or to bring under control. To control or to bring, bring under control. Meaning this, to capture while alive, and in this case, capture alive men and women. Capture live men and women. That's where I get the title for today's sermon, Catching Live People. And here's the idea, and you want to write this down. Jesus is using Simon's profession as a professional fisherman as an analogy about giving life through the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let me say that again. Jesus is using Simon's profession as a fisherman as an analogy about giving life through the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the point. And so when it comes to catching live people, there's an eschatological theme or emphasis here. Eschatology simply means end times. And we understand if we read the Bible rightly, is that if we as sinners or anybody dies in their sin without faith in Christ. There's judgment. And so this idea of catching live people means to snatch them from judgment. It means to give them a way out of God's judgment. God will judge sinners. That's what the holy, perfect, righteous God does. The God that we see in Hollywood or in other religions are false gods. They do not exist. They are deaf. They cannot hear. They are blind. They cannot see. They are mute. They cannot speak. And so the God we serve, the God of the Bible, the God of the universe, will judge sinners for their sin. And so Jesus is saying, Catch people while they're alive. Give them hope, the hope of eternal life in Jesus Christ. You will be catching live people. You know, when we think of God's judgment and we apply it to this text of fishing, this is what it looks like. If you're to go fishing, you catch a fish, you kill the fish, you cook the fish, and you eat the fish. That's an idea of God's judgment when you relate it to fishing. But that's not what Jesus is talking about. Jesus' command of you will be catching men is the opposite of that. You're going to give life. You're going to give hope. Obviously, God has all power and authority to change the heart. We don't. We are simply 
messengers. We're simply ambassadors. But as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, we have a role. We have a responsibility. We have a job to do. God is the one who changes heart. So to catch people alive means to give sinners a way to escape judgment. The judgment of God through the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what you're doing when we share the gospel. We're giving them a way out. Now, when people reject us, they're not rejecting us. It was never our message to begin with. So don't take it personal when people are mad and angry and they spit and curse and they're vile, wicked, and evil and they call you names and they mistreat you. First and foremost, they're rejecting God. They hate God. You just happen to be the messenger. We need to understand this. The church's mission has two points, or it's twofold. Number one, the church, we must be a worldwide witness. We must continue to be a worldwide witness if we're going to catch people alive. And what does that mean? We make disciples. We plant churches. Even though we're a small church, God has us here for a reason. We're to make disciples. We do not make converts. God makes converts. We're simply delivery men and women. We deliver message, the message of hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. We make disciples. We share the message with them. God, by his grace, if he sees fit to change their heart and save them, saves them by his grace, by his mercy. And then once that happens, we disciple. So when we think that our only job is to share the gospel and then stop, I've done my job, Pastor Rolo, no, you haven't. You've done just step one of many different steps. We're called to disciple. We're also called to plant churches. In the midst of the first year of COVID, I've said this once, I've said it a thousand times, we planted a church in downtown Las Vegas in a very difficult part of Las Vegas in September of that year, of 2020. The world doesn't dictate to us how to disciple people, what message to provide and deliver, or when to plant churches. The Lord dictates that. If the Lord says to us, cast the net over there, we say, Lord, how far over there do you want us to cast the net? We don't say, well, Lord, we've been working all night. I live and work in Las Vegas. They have night shifts. I worked all night and I'm tired. We don't say that. We're called to make witnesses around the world. We're called to make disciples. We're called to plant churches. In other words, we're to tell everybody and anybody who has a heartbeat about Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Anointed One, Jesus the Savior, Jesus the only mediator between God and man. Without Jesus, you have no hope. And with Jesus, you have everything. That's what we're called to do. That's the first part of the church's mission. Listen to this. Matthew 24, 14 says this. And this gospel of the kingdom, Jesus says this, 
will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. Jesus guarantees that's going to happen. Matthew 28, 19. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. He doesn't say make converts. That's the Lord's authority and business. We're called to make disciples. That's point number one of the church's mission. Point number two of the church's mission. All Christians are called to a ministry of mercy and compassion for image bearers, for people who are made in the image of God. We're called to do works of mercy and compassion. To love our neighbor after we love our God is to listen, look, find for the needs of the people, whether it be physical or medical or whatever the case may be, and we are to do our job and help them, to provide for them, to be generous and compassionate to those who are sick, those who are hungry, those who are hurting, those who are destitute. You know, it's, it's amazing that in modern Christianity that we can preach a solid biblical message and not really care for people. I'm not saying that happens in this church. Maybe it does happen to this church. I don't know. But I know that in many cases, people are very good at evangelizing, but they don't want to help their physical needs of the people. We're to do both. If God gives us, listen, in God's strange but kind providence, if God gives us an opportunity to take care of a complete stranger who needs medicine, give them medicine. That's the doorway to the gospel. If a person is hungry, give them food. That's the doorway into the gospel. Because it's amazing when non-Christians say to Christians, you tell me about Jesus, and I'm telling you I'm hurting, and you give me a message, and I'm hungry, and you don't give me any food. I'm sick, and you don't give me any medicine. What are we doing to the message of Jesus? We're actually contradicting the message. We need to be mindful of both. Romans 12, 20 says this, To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. The Bible's very clear that we're to love our neighbor, but the Bible's also very clear that we're to love our enemies. And one way of loving our enemies is not only to share the gospel, but also when they have physical needs at our own personal cost and sacrifice, we're to help them. So does that mean, Pastor Ola, we're not to help the church, our Christian family? No, the Bible's very clear. Do good unto all, especially to the household of faith. We start in our own house. How can we help others if we don't start in-house? We need to start in-house, help one another, bless one another. Then the light of Christ shines brightly in the community that we live, work, and serve. Then we can serve others. When the gospel-centered church does this, we bring credibility to the gospel. Don't disconnect the two. But we need to ask a very important question. 
What's involved in capturing live people? What's involved in giving life through the proclamation of the gospel? What's actually at stake? What is required? Let me make a few suggestions. Number one, it requires hard work. It requires hard work. Evangelism is not easy. It's hard work. Think about it. Fishermen work long hours throughout the night. They got to pull in nets. Sometimes it's empty. Sometimes it's heavy. It's labor intensive. It requires a lot of strain and strength. Many times there's very little results. It's the same idea and concept when it comes to evangelism. There's many times we'll share the gospel. Will we see the fruit of that gospel seed in this life? Many times we don't see the fruit of that gospel seed being planted. That's okay. The Lord knows. Remember, it's the Lord who converts. It's the Lord who saves. It's the Lord who changes hearts. We're called to sow the gospel seed wherever we go. And many times we'll see very little results or maybe no results at all. all. But number two, we need to know what we believe and why we believe it. If you're going to evangelize, that's assuming or presupposing you have a message that you understand and you're willing to sacrifice yourself for this gospel message as you share and deliver this message to others. In biblical evangelism, we only have one kind of bait. Only one kind of bait. It's the good news of Jesus Christ. We don't have good advice. We don't have good opinions. We don't have good recommendations. We don't have good ideas. We don't have good feelings. We have good news. We are heralds. We are ambassadors. We are witnesses of Jesus Christ. We are disciples of the King. And so when we proclaim the truth of Jesus, that there is no other Savior but Jesus, and if you're going to ever be forgiven of all your sins, is put your faith, place your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, in Him alone. Turn away from your sins. That is the message that we proclaim. We have no authority, we have no right to ever change that message. And God forbid that in our fear, when we are fearful, that we're tempted to change that message. There's only one kind of bait to catch fish. And applied to evangelism, it's the good news of Jesus Christ. You must know what you believe and why you believe it. If you've been a Christian for two years, or I would say even a year, and you don't know how to present the gospel, please listen, there's something wrong. You have to know it. You have to know it. If you are a follower of Jesus, you have to know what you believe and why. But, and here's here's the consequence of that. See, if if you're not clear on the gospel and you start telling people about your testimony, your personal testimony, we need to be mindful that your personal testimony and my personal testimony is not exactly the gospel. It may be related and connected to the gospel, but it's not the good news of Jesus. Because what are you going to do when your friend or your acquaintance or the stranger says, 
Rolo, that's good for you. That doesn't apply to me. Then where do you go in the conversation? Now you're stuck. You're in the corner. You got nowhere to go. We need to be clear that, dear friend, you've sinned against your maker. You've sinned against God. You violated his law. And because of that, you are on your way to hell. But here's the good news. God has provided a way where you can be forgiven of all your sins if you'll turn from your sins and trust in the living Savior, Jesus Christ. You are 100% forgiven by God through him. See, what you win people with is what you win people to. If you give people the biblical gospel, they will love Jesus as King and Savior. If you win people to Jesus with coffee, and the coffee is bad one day, they're going to leave Jesus. If you win people with money, and when they run out of money, they're going to leave Jesus. When you win people to Jesus with health, and the American dream, and the American dream falls apart because the economy is shattered, and they have no health, then they're going to leave Jesus. What you win people with is what you win people to. Give them the gospel and they will love Jesus. And when times are tough and difficult, they'll stay with Jesus. They'll stay with Jesus. Final thoughts. If you look at the end of verse, or actually verse 11, after Jesus says, do not be afraid, from now on you will be catching men. Verse 11 says, And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything. They left everything. Did you hear that? They left everything and followed him. To follow Jesus means Jesus is your number one priority in your life. They left everything and followed him. Being a disciple of Jesus requires wholehearted devotion. So you may say, Pastor Rolo, there are certain things that I love in this world and I just can't let go. Jesus says in Matthew 10, you're not worthy to be my disciple if you're not willing to let it go. You're not worthy of being my disciple. Those are the words that come from Jesus. But you can be a disciple by God's grace and help. See, when you see Jesus clearly, who he is, that he's the Savior who's lived and died for sinners, who repent and trust in him, when you see the greatness of God and the holiness of God and the power of God unto salvation in the person of Jesus Christ, everything else fades away. It's easy to let those things go. Those menial, secondary things, it's easy to let those things go. But when you don't see Jesus clearly, you will never let those things go. But the call to discipleship requires everything that you have. And God will help you. And God will help me. And God will help us. Jesus says in Luke chapter 9, verse 23, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. 
It does not say take up your cross on the days that you feel good. It says take up your cross daily. Come and follow me. That's the call of biblical Christianity. You know, as I close here, let me ask you some honest but direct questions. Honest and direct questions. Have you and I, as Christians, lost our nerve? Meaning, are we fearful? Fearful of man. Have we forgotten? Have we honestly forgotten that the best way to transform society is through the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ? That's God's way, by the way. God's way of transforming culture and society and nations is through the gospel. Here's another question. How often must we be reminded that the cross of Christ alone can change the human heart and reconcile sinful people to God? We need to be constantly reminded that it is God who has the power to change hearts. It is God who has the power to change your marriage, to change your situation, to change your family. Sinful people can be reconciled to God through Christ. You know, we've sung a song here many times in this church for many, many years. It's hymn number 493, Onward Christian Soldiers. Pastor Ed does a great job of singing that song with Caleb's help and, and others who are up here. Onward Christian Soldiers. But what if this onward Christian soldiers, meaning go forward in the power of God with the proclamation of the gospel, what if that were reversed? What if the song said, backward Christian soldiers? This is how it would read. Backward Christian soldiers, fleeing from the fight, with the cross of Jesus, nearly out of sight. Christ, our rightful master, stands against the foe, Onward into battle, we seem afraid to go. Like a mighty tortoise moves the church of God. Brothers, we are treading where we've often trod. In other words, we love to go where places are comfortable. We are much divided, many bodies we, having different doctrines, but not much charity. Crowns and thrones may perish, kingdoms rise and wane, but the cross of Jesus hidden does remain. Gates of hell should never gain the church prevail. We have Christ's own promise, but we think it might fail. Sit here then, ye people, join our sleeping throng. Blend with ours your voices in a feeble song. Blessings, ease, and comfort ask from the Christ, the King. But with our modern thinking, we won't do a thing. And then here's the chorus. Backward Christian soldiers fleeing from the fight with the cross of Jesus nearly out of sight. I think that's apropos. May that never be said of us, but that could be said of us if we're not careful and not intentional about what we believe and who we serve. Remember, it is God's power that is most clearly seen in the message of the cross than anywhere else in the world. 
The power of God is clearly seen in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we see our call in today's text, the divine imperative, the divine authority, the divine mission. Be mindful, dear people of God. Remember your call. Remember our call. Remember why God saved you. Sermon in a sentence. The new humanity that Jesus is establishing is the gospel-centered church, and we must take our call seriously to proclaim eternal life only through him. Will we be faithful in that? Will we be faithful in that? Will we obey this call sooner than later? Let's pray. Father, thank you, Lord, for your extreme kindness, faithfulness, patience, and love towards us. Thank you for giving us your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we're grateful that you are the head of the church and that you direct our steps. But we admit, Lord, from time to time, we have been distracted and unfocused. We have focused on building our own kingdom instead of your kingdom. And for that, oh God, we are very sorry. Help us now. Help us now, oh God, to follow you as we should. We're grateful that you're our king, that you're sovereign, that you're powerful and mighty. Thank you for the salvation we have. And Lord, give us hearts of compassion, a burden for those who are dead and dying in their sin. Lord, make us bold. Help us to catch those who are alive with the hope of the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.